So, Joanne, this question of abortion rights is one that has been a sharp debate for quite some time. And I wonder what it tells us about the nature of debate and disagreement in American history. Well, this makes me think about the many ways in which there are a lot of different threads of conversation all sort of plugged into this one issue of abortion. There's a a question of religion. There's a question of women's rights. There are any number of other threads we could throw in, partisanship and everything else. And they're all highly charged. There's a long tradition of them being highly charged in American history. And this issue sort of brings them together in a, a really powerful and yet murky kind of way. You know, when I was in college, I was in some ways grappling with these processes um, through the combination of growing up in a Catholic church and, you know, coming of age in that space, but also arriving in university life where a, a whole host of questions, as we know, get thrown on the table for reconsideration. And it was in that space that I, I came in contact with a, a mode of argument about abortion that made the following, and I'm curious to get to get your thoughts on it, that, in fact, abortion was considered to be a male solution to the, the quote-unquote problem of pregnancy insofar as it was a an act of violence that basically ended a life and that a feminist action around a pregnancy would mean or include carrying a baby to term, but also advocating for a whole host of social investments around the pregnancy itself. So improved access to health care and improved treatment for women who might have to leave work or thinking much more thoughtfully about the adoption system. In other words, that, you know, as coming out of a, a Catholic church and going to a Catholic university, the way in which we should institutionally think of ourselves as feminists was maybe moving off of the abortion option and thinking much more about the civic meaning of pregnancy itself. And, and social change, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And again, you know, this is not an argument that you hear very often, but it was one that I recall being at least a, a, a creative response to an otherwise, you know, stark huh. uh, black-white debate. Wow. No, I can't say that I actually have heard that argument before. Um, I, I definitely was not aware of any argument like that back in the 80s when I first became aware of this issue. And, you know, I hadn't thought about it until just this moment when we sort of brought together the fact that evangelical Christianity and women's rights and civil rights were all bound together. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it, this is the first issue for me that really, I suppose, made me an activist. And in the past, I guess I had always assumed that this was mostly a question of women's rights for me. But I think I think the religious side of it also probably caught my attention, that, that something on both halves of that equation as someone who is a woman and as someone who is Jewish made me wonder what this debate really was about and made me wonder about what it meant for women and people like me. And it's interesting because I had a slow entry into deciding what I wanted to do about the issue. You know, I was alarmed, I think, in the 80s as it was becoming politicized and it felt like um, lines were being drawn in a way that I wasn't comfortable. But I wanted to, I wanted to know what I thought about abortion before I took action on it. A friend worked at a woman's health clinic, and I actually went for a day and, and worked at that clinic, really not doing much more than 
helping women go in and out of different rooms. I think I took some people's temperature, maybe. I mean, I was mostly just sort of facilitating people moving about. But mostly, I just wanted to be at a clinic that performed abortions and see what that meant. Mm -hmm. and, and see who these women were and see what was happening. If I remember correctly, I stood, I held one woman's hand through an abortion. Wow, wow. I, I, right, I, I wanted to know what it meant. And I left that experience feeling this was not something flip. This was not, um, you know, because I think my sense of the debate at that moment was that people were saying women are just, you know, haphazardly using abortion to, because, hey, it's easy, and then we don't have to worry about being pregnant. And that's not what I saw. You know, that's, that's not what I saw. So right, right. I think I left that experience feeling mm. it, it, this was not an easy choice for people to make, but it was a choice that people were taking seriously. And then I began to sort of investigate what other people were doing who were, felt sort of like I did. And I actually ended up being part of a... At the time, I think we called it clinic defense. Um, basically, just there were groups of us that were put um, in front of women's health clinics that performed abortions um, with the thought that we would just make sure people could get in and out who wanted to get in and out. Right. And it was a very organized process. You know, I mean, we, we had a lot of conversation about it. We learned how to stand up to people, passive resistance and, and other things to do so that nothing, we would not ever accelerate into violence mm -hmm. if something ever happened. Most of the time, this meant really, really early Saturday mornings, me standing with a bunch of really cold people wearing layers of clothing in front of women's health clinics right. and nothing happening. But then there was one Saturday when uh, we were the target. The clinic that I happened to be at was the target and we were attacked by busloads of people. And I've, I never have had an experience like that before or since. And it was so um, surreal because there were people running at me, some of them with Bibles, screaming at me that I was a bad Christian. I half wanted to laugh, right? I was partly, I was like, well, you got something there. <laughs> I really am not. But it, it was such a dramatic example of what we started out by talking about, Nathan, where that was not a conversation I was having by standing in front of that clinic. My, what I was doing was trying to help women who had made a choice carry that choice out. And there was a man with a Bible running at me and telling me I was a bad Christian. And it felt, and, and I'm, you know, I'm sure from his side, he didn't pick up on my half of that conversation either. Mm -hmm. um, but it was such a dramatic example and it was so powerful and immediate of the ways in which people... Uh, the issue means a lot right. to people, but it means that in such different ways. So Nathan, you know, what's really striking to me is that above and beyond the issue itself, the Supreme Court decision is just as complex and just as tangled. And it seems as though, you know, when people talk out in the public sphere about what will or won't happen to Roe v. Wade, more often than not, they say that if it gets overturned, it won't be all in one fell swoop. You know, it'll be bit by bit because it's such a, a tangled issue and it has such, it, it evokes such strong feelings that there actually might not be a way, oddly enough, despite all the strong feelings or because of all the strong feelings 
to to eliminate it any other way. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I mean, if if you think about it just in terms of the abstract constitutional questions, right, the right to privacy is a huge cornerstone of American life more broadly. Mm -hmm. So folks are going to absolutely want to fight along that axis. You think about as the decision was being, you know, decided and, and, and hammered out, there were social movements that were in the streets literally shaping the mind of judges in the court, right? And, and the language of the right. decision itself moved and evolved in response to that grassroots effort. That effort has not gone away in the half century right. since, you know, this decision. So again, on, on that line as well, I think you'll see it, you know, be an extraordinarily, you know, gnarly um, set of conflicts to, to wind this down or to, or to, 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 to protect it. There's also, I think, the, the question as we constantly come back to of just, you know, people who are very mindful of the human costs on both sides. And so there, too, you'll have people who will want to step outside of the narrow frame of the law and, and constantly cast the debate in bigger moral terms mm-hmm. and, in, and in terms of who you mm-hmm. know we are as a country. And so for all those reasons, I, I think you'll see um, a number of really important smaller decisions that are being decided in the wake of the Roe case. And, and in some ways, it's, it's an even bigger decision than than that of Brown, which is, you know, Brown still is the law of the land, right? No one is rolling back or touching the, the notion that separate is not equal, even if, in fact, it's, you know, we haven't really done the work to really let desegregation happen in the way that it was perhaps most imagined by its advocates. But Roe is very different. Roe is that we're, we're going back into the case law and into the the court of popular opinion and relitigating this thing constantly. It's a reminder about something that I think it's easy to forget, although I suppose less easy nowadays. But, you know, I think there's a tendency to think of, you know, Supreme Court decisions, all capital letters, (laughs) you know, as things that are declared and then law has been established. And what we're really talking about with all of these major Supreme Court decisions, but particularly with Roe, is the ground level real life implications of those decisions and how even a decision once made isn't necessarily permanent, that there's always the possibility for better and for worse of change mm-hmm. and that that is worked out on the ground and not in a court. 